standing, I would invite you to do so. You don't have to. Either way, take your Bibles and turn to Micah chapter 7. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one right in front of you in the pew. Grab that and turn to page 780. Page 780 or Micah chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and we'll finish out the chapter there in verse 20. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now there is confusion at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the sons treat their fathers with contempt and daughters rise up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God uh, will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon him. I, I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundaries shall be far extended. And that day will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river and from the sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. 
The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like, a, like crawling things on the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you? Hardening iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquity underfoot you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You may be seated. Father, there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is absolutely true. And Father, it is a treasure to have your word. Not because it's an old, dusty book that says old things that are not pertinent to us today, but that it is a true and living book. It is empowered by the very Spirit of God that moved upon men like Micah to write it. And it is alive and well today. And, and we would pray that as we look at this passage that we've just read, that this same spirit would now stir in our midst, be at work in each of our hearts and lives, that the very word that brings things to life would be at work transforming our lives today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to, this morning is our last look at the prophet Micah. We're taking some weeks this fall to look at three of the minor prophets, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And uh, this morning we wrap up Micah. Micah has been a hard book for us to look at. It has hard things to say to us. It was hard when they first heard Micah say the things he said, and it's, it's hard still for us to hear these things. And two things I want us to think about as we consider chapter 7 of the book of Micah. First of all, in verses 1 through 7, I want us to note that we are called to trust in the Lord. In fact, verse 7 would be the verse that I want us to most hone in on in verses 1 through 7, where Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Call to trust in the Lord. And then that becomes the game changer for the rest of the book. In fact, verses 8 through 20 speaks to us about being compelled to trust in the Lord. We're not just told to trust in the Lord. We are given a compelling reason to trust in the Lord. And the two verses from 
8 through 20 that I want us to particularly highlight and focus on is these, are these marvelous verses of 18 and 19. Who is like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depth of the sea. A compelling reason to trust in the Lord. Now let's look at these two segments one at a time. First of all, the call. We are called to trust in the Lord. And um, it's a bit, a bit of a metaphorical description as chapter 7 begins. Uh, it uses the, the uh, uh, agricultural descriptions that were so uh, common in that culture in that day and age. But what uh, Micah is describing here in the opening verses of chapter 7 is a complete cultural collapse. I would remind us that what Micah has been alluding to uh, all throughout this book is that the Assyrians are knocking on the door. Uh, they are going to sweep down and decimate the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are going to then extend their, their stay a bit longer and surround the southern kingdom of Judah. They are an imminent threat of complete destruction. And yet, Assyria is just an instrument. They are an instrument in the hands of the mighty God who superintends all affairs of all men, who rules and reigns over all nations, who rise, raises up nations and who tears down nations as he sees fit. And so while the imminent threat upon Israel and Judah is the marauding raiders of the Assyrians, the real threat is that Israel and Judah have offended their covenant God. And they are under the judgment and discipline of God at this very moment. And one of the indications that they are under the disciplining, judging hand of God is that their entire society is collapsing. It's a moral collapse. Look at verse 2. The godly have perished from the earth. There is no one upright among man mankind. And for that, Micah says, woe is me. Woe is really a, a, a notion of cursed. In chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he, uh, he uses the word woe not toward himself, but toward the uh, evildoer. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Woe to the evildoers. They are cursed. And yet now living in this culture that he finds himself in, he feels the, the weightiness and he laments and, uh, and feels the acute 
pain and, and torment of living in such a culture that is completely collapsing because there is a, a correlation of a complete moral collapse. There's practically no one left in his day who is upright and godly. Micah is surrounded by trouble and affliction. By saying, woe to me, he's really saying, life is one big woe. Trauma has already come upon him and the dread of yet more trauma is waiting him, awaiting for him. We sometimes read these, these guys and these stories and these episodes and we, we remove ourselves from the full import of what they have experienced The, the current fad in, in uh, um, the behavioral sciences is trauma-informed counseling. In other words, you've, you've got to be a, um, an elitist specialist to help people who, who have walked through calamity and trauma. And so, and so now for the first time in the 21st century, we now have people who know what it's like to face trauma and to know how to counsel you through trauma. Huh? There is nothing new about trauma and calamity. You don't have to read far into the Old Testament scriptures where you see that, that, that these people faced levels of trauma and calamity and struggle and trouble and difficulty and heartache beyond what you and I could perhaps fully grasp or imagine. Micah feels the, the, feels the dread of the trauma that is yet coming his way. It's already begun. There's no one around him who is righteous. There's no one around him who is upright. It goes on. Look at, look at how he describes that uh, in verses 5 and 6. You say, well, okay, his, his society is collapsing, but, but maybe he can find refuge in his home. Mm. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Uh, now, now, don't take this out of context. Don't, don't, don't think about your next-door neighbor right now and, and refuse to trust him. Uh, really, what it's suggesting to us is that that's the current state of the people. There's, all the godly have perished. There's no one who is upright. And so if there's no one who is godly and upright, and if that happens to be your neighbor, then yeah, you're right. Don't trust your neighbor. This is like deja vu all over again. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the, the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Who's that? Well, I can tell you who it ought to be. The one who lies in your arms ought to be your wife. He said, don't even trust your wife. 
Now, the implication is that, that your wife has proven to be untrustworthy. Otherwise, trust your wife. You know, you, okay, you get, you get what, I'm, what I'm saying. Don't, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to be marital discord this afternoon. Oh, any more than necessary, at least I should say, because of something that, I, that I've said. The, the son treats his father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are men of his own house. You see, the, the societal collapse has, uh, has extended itself so profoundly and so deeply and so greatly that that collapse has even filtrated into the home and into the family. You know when a society is about to fall, when the families that comprise that society are, are, are collapsing and falling because there is no moral fiber in those homes. Reading a fascinating book right now. Uh, it's entitled Two-Parent Privilege. It's a sociological observation of the fact that um, it is not skin color, per se, that provides children with privilege. No, it is, it is the moral conviction that grounds that home that provides children with privilege. Now, I know we're all, unqueasy, uh, we're all a little unqueasy, uh, we're a little queasy at this moment because uh, we're like, well, wait a minute, we shouldn't raise privileged children. Who says? I'm here to tell you that if a mother and father are committed in covenant love with each other and they raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then you are going to have privileged children on your hands. You're going to have children who have advantages far beyond others that one should not feel guilty about. One shouldn't, one shouldn't be arrogant or gloat about those things. One should just be thankful for the grace of God in one's life that has allowed oneself to operate with such a perspective on life. You see, societal collapse occurs when there is a moral collapse, and when that moral collapse reaches all the way down into the home, and when there's a home collapse, then, then there is every kind of societal and cultural collapse that you can imagine. So that's just a glimpse as to how extensively rotten things are in Micah's time. No one can be trusted. Not even your own family. What a horrible description of reality. And yet, wonderfully, Micah doesn't end it there, does he? Look at verse 7 again. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. 
when culture is so rotten that no one can be trusted, there is still someone who could be trusted. Out. The one who can be trusted is the only one who ultimately and infinitely is proven time and time again to be eternally trustworthy. You see, if it, it, if it is so bad in life that only God can be trusted then you and I still have absolutely all the hope and the help that we need. In, in Micah, in Micah saying what he will do, I, I would think fun functionally what Micah is saying is he's calling upon the remnant, those, those few who may be left who, who have a sense for which way's up and which way's down. He's, he's calling upon the remnant uh, to trust in the Lord. Micah's acknowledgement of his resolve to turn to the Lord in the midst of a cultural collapse and an, a complete breakdown of the home uh, is it functions as to how you and I should grapple with where 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 we do where do we turn? Turn to Micah's God. Now, I don't know how it got this way, uh, but. Somewhere along the line in our uh, educational orientation to life, it became silly and unhelpful to talk about trusting in the Lord. When did trusting in the Lord become so inadequate? When did uh, all of the sophisticated, uh, highfalutin uh, psychological therapies become that which you really need to give you the functionality of life? So that if you learn how to do a rapid eye movement therapy, or if you learn how to master the technique of breathing therapy, then, then, then you have what it, what, it, what it takes to sustain your life. Why rely upon techniques? When we have the God who spoke all things into the universe, who holds the universe together by the power of his word, who still speaks to us through his word, since when did it, be, did it become inadequate to look to the Lord and trust in him when everything around us is unraveling? And when did directing people to trust in the Lord become such lame advice? Well, it's not lame advice. It's still the core, bottom line, essential 
reality for your life and my life. Then in verse 8 and following, there's a, there's a shift. I think it's a bit of a, a, a massive shift. He's gone from calling us to trust in the Lord to giving us a compelling reason to trust in the Lord. Beginning in verse 8, on the one hand, nothing yet has changed. He's still presently living in a society that is in total collapse and meltdown. He's still living in an environment in which in the very fabric of home is unraveling. And, and, yet, and yet what does radically change, beginning in verse 8, is not Micah's situation or circumstance, but what has radically changed is Micah's perspective on his situation and circumstance. You see, when we trust in the Lord, the Lord's grace gives us everything our hearts need. It, 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 it wouldn't be too hard for the Lord to instantly change our circumstances or our situation. But oftentimes he's pleased not to do a circumstantial and situational change. But he is pleased to give us the grace that our hearts need to adopt a different perspective on ourselves and upon God and upon the circumstances and the situation that we find ourselves in. Micah actually shifts to an optimistic praise in verses 8 through 20 because in seeing the Lord differently, he now sees everything else differently. So in verses 8 and verse 10, he sees that his enemies will be defeated. In verse 9, he sees the Lord himself advocating for him. In verses uh, 11, 12, and 13, he sees a restoration of, uh, of Jerusalem, of the people of God. In verses 14 and 15, he sees a shepherd emerging to lead and guide and protect his people. He sees also in verses 14 to 15 um, a, a renewed, a new kind of exodus. Verses 16 through 17, he sees the Lord high and exalted, ruling over all the nations. Now, none of those things had happened yet in Micah's time. Do, do, do you see the profound significance of when we trust in the Lord, we see the Lord, and we see an entirely different perspective on how to interpret and make sense of what is confronting us in our lives. This is going to be a profound observation. You might want to write this one down. But the day, the day that we are currently living in is very similarly a day of complete moral collapse. On the one hand, it is terrorizing. On the other hand, it is calamitous. On the other hand, it is trauma-filled. On the other hand, it is a big mess. But we don't have to be the people who are unraveling because of those realities. 
We can be the people who do not look at those troubles and fail to see a God whose hand is supervising those troubles. We can see a God whose hand has his hand on us, his people, and has a hand on the end game as to where he's going with the current movement in history. We don't, even though we are living in a hopeless and despairing time, we do not have to be a people with no hope who are filled with nothing but despair. Not because we are out of touch with reality. We could feel the full import of the pain of reality, but because we know that there is a God who is more real than reality, and we know that our God is superintending this present reality to bring it to his intended end game. So none of the things that, that, that Micah describes in verses 8 through 17, none of the things are, are exactly that way at that moment. Israel and Judah are still under the, God's judgment and or discipline at that moment. And yet Micah can have great confidence in the midst of the chaos because Micah sees something really clear about what the Lord God has done in his own life and what the Lord God has done in the life of all of his people. And that's where I would run us to verses 18 and 19 for a moment. In fact, it's interesting, I think, I would suggest to you that the very construction of verses 18 through 19 help us to highlight uh, a particular line in those two verses that is um, uh, utmost in terms of its emphasis. Um, look, for instance, the first, the first part of verse 18 it actually parallels to the last part of verse 19. Let me read those two in tandem here. So he says there in the first couple of lines of verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? So he's talking about sin. What does he say in the last part of verse 19? He will tread our iniquity, iniquities underfoot and you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you see the parallel? He, he, he starts there at the first part of verse 18 and that mirrors what he's saying at the last part of verse 19. In other words, uh, that, that, that Micah can have confidence that, that he is in God's hands and that the judgment that is falling around him will not reach him. Why? Because this incredible, marvelous God has done something in reference to sin in Micah's own life. That's true for any and all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is a profound basis upon which God pardons iniquity and passes over transgression and treads our iniquities underfoot and casts our sins into the depths of the seas. 
the basis for such bold assertions and claims is that Jesus has taken our sins upon himself. And by taking them upon himself, he is taking them away from us. And the immediate consequence of you and I having our sins removed from us and placed upon Jesus, again, is found in a mirroring kind of uh, uh, design here in these verses. Look at, bounce back up to uh, the middle part of verse 18 for a second. He does not retain his anger forever. That mirrors and parallels what he says um, in, the, in the first line of verse 19. He will again have compassion or mercy upon us. The reason why God will not remain angry with his children the reason why God will always act with compassion toward his children is because he is taking his children's sins and placed them upon Jesus. And so he has nothing left to be angry with you about. He has no reason to be anything but compassionate towards you. Because your sins have been removed. And when he takes away our sins, he removes his hand of anger. And when he takes away our sins, he places over us his hand of compassion. And what motivates God to remove his anger from us to place his compassion upon us, what motivates God uh, to pardon our iniquity and pass over our transgression and to tread our iniquities under his feet and to cast our sins into the depths of the sea is that last line in verse 18. This is the heart of God. This is why we should be compelled to trust in God no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what our situation is that we find ourselves in. He is a God who delights in steadfast love. Oh, our God is holy, he's just, he's righteous. But when we get to the heart of God, we don't take any of those things away from him. But we see that those things get resolved as well through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Lord Jesus Christ shows us is that God loves to love his children. Brings him joy to love his children. And if we see that in God's holy word, that God loves to love his children, he's expressed that most spectacularly in sending his son Jesus to be our substitute. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We are compelled to trust in the Lord because of his steadfast love. And we are called to trust in the Lord. He will keep us. He will preserve us. He will give us all the grace that we need to sustain us, even when the very society that we are living in is in the midst of total collapse. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given Micah a word to say, not only to people in his own time, but, but even us today. So, Father, help us. Help us to see the great truthfulness of your word. Help us to see that how Micah directs us to do exactly what he did, to trust in the Lord. And Father, help us to be utterly amazed, to marvel at who is a God like you, who would pardon us of our iniquities, who would not remain angry with us, who would show great love and compassion toward us, and whose steadfast love never relents. Father, thank you that these things are true because Jesus has come. Jesus has shed his blood. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. We thank you for Jesus, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together.